It's a new year. It's a new beginning. There is a new administration in Washington, D.C., and there are certainly a lot of new and disruptive things happening in the clean energy sector. It's, it's a very exciting time, and we're very pleased to launch, uh, in these very exciting times, our second season, episode one uh, of Electrifying AI, where we will be discussing some of these transformations and also starting with our own transformation first, in which I have now become the host of Electrifying AI uh, for this season. Uh, our goal for this new season is the same as it has always been. Uh, it's to provide a venue for clean energy enthusiasts to gain up-to-date insights on the latest developments taking shape in the electricity sector. Along the way, we'll also help try to demystify uh, the connection between the greatest uh, machine ever built, the electric grid, and the greatest enabler of our time, data analytics. So to help us do that, we'll have a series of special guests um, this season who hold a variety of different roles throughout the electricity space and industry. And to get us started, our guest for this debut episode of season two will help us get an overview of where the industry is right now and where it is heading in 2021. So I'm pleased that uh, we're joined with David Roberts. Uh, David has spent more than 15 years thinking and writing about the intersection of clean energy and politics. For much of that time, he wrote for Grist and Wax. And um, he's recently created his own online community called, appropriately enough, Volts. David has also appeared on a variety of TV shows, radio programs, and podcasts like MSNBC's All In with Chris Hayes, Pot Save America, and NBC's Why Is This Happening? David, we are so excited to have you on the podcast today, and thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. Excellent. So, David, let's dig right in. So on your website, you, you talk about one of the challenges of writing for a journalist uh, for a journalistic organization is that you're forced to write for an audience of strangers who know nothing about you, your past work, or your subject matter. So help our audience get to know you. How did you wind up moving from Tennessee to Seattle and then getting plugged into covering the clean energy industry? Well, it was all pretty random. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not a very good story because of how random it is. I was uh, uh, a student, a philosophy student, uh, for a long time uh, in the late 90s. I uh, got my master's in philosophy and then and then was getting my PhD and dropped out just before uh, dissertation. So I'm part of the uh, ABD, ABD nation. Uh, and then I moved to Seattle and bounced around crappy tech jobs for a while with because I you know I had no experience no job experience no real marketable skills nothing <laughs> under my belt but a bunch of philosophy study so anyway long story short in in 2004 I the very first time I ever went to Craigslist I stumbled on an ad for uh, a a um, editorial assistant at a small web publication called Grist uh, and at the time there were four employees. I think Grist had four employees. It was very small. Wow. Uh, so I just wrote this long cover letter saying, you know, I have no experience in journalism or environmentalism, uh, but gosh, I sure do want this job and talked my way into it. And so, and so then I just grew with Grist. 
I was with Grist for 10 years as, as they grew up to 30, I think, 30 people or somewhat. And I moved over from being an assistant into full-time writing over that course. And basically, so the point of all that is I'm entirely uh, 100% self-taught uh, in journalism and in environmentalism and in climate change. I, I, I learned about it. Entirely through doing it, which has, you know, some advantages and some disadvantages. Hey, that's the best way to learn, right? So <laughs> can't go wrong with that. And uh, yeah, so then Volts, or I'm sorry, then Vox uh, asked me over there uh, about five years ago, and I stayed there for a while through the Trump madness. And then when that was finally over, I decided it was time to go out on my own. And so now I'm running Volts and I'm just uh, writing all and only what I feel like writing and and <laughs> returned to um, having a stable community that that stays with me, an audience that stays with me over time so that I don't have to, for instance, explain why climate change is bad uh, <laughs> at the beginning of every single article. <laughs> okay, cool. That sounds like uh, a lot of fun. It's it's it sounds like a very exciting venture. And I, I was going to say I can see your philosophy coming in in some of your articles and, and and your approach to to climate change. So I'm really looking forward to this dialogue. I have one more get to know you question, uh, David. And um, at the end of the episode, uh, for our listeners, I want your answers to the question this question too. So please stick around. But David, um, there is no other place to begin, really. Uh, other than, uh, you know, starting off with what is really happening in the energy space with the new administration and, and uh, with, with the change uh, in D.C. with, with Biden joining uh, Washington now. So, you know, he has he has put climate change up, in, you know, very high up in his agenda against his uh, three other priorities. I, I believe it's racial equity. It's um, uh, uh, around um, uh climate change is the other one. And then there's two others. So, you know, COVID. Where, don't co forget COVID. Co of course, of course. <laughs> yes. COVID is the other big one. How can we forget that? And actually, we'll, we'll come back to COVID as well uh, later. Um, so, you know, how do you how do you how do you see what is happening? And, you know, even though it's the early days of Biden, but there's already been so much that's been happening from Paris climate agreement to a whole bunch of executive actions coming through. So, how does David Roberts view uh, what's what's happened in D.C. And, and how it impacts our industry? Sure. I think uh, the best way to summarize it, what, what's happened in the climate politics space over the last, <clears throat> call it five to ten years, is um, almost no movement <laughs> on the Republican mm -hmm. side. Uh, some rhetorical movement, but almost no policy movement. But but on the Democratic side, it has gone from a sort of peripheral issue seen as kind of the activist left kind of pet issue mm -hmm. to being a central <clears throat> priority for the party as a whole. And you're seeing that very much reflected in uh, Biden's administration in so far as he has freedom of action, for instance, in executive powers over the executive branch, he's absolutely going gangbusters from the second he he walked in there's you know getting back in paris but also this whole series of executive orders uh you know undoing a bunch of last minute trump um deregulatory stuff uh 
getting to work on establishing a what's called a social cost of carbon, you know, integrating carbon concern into into every agency of the government. So, so in that sense, it's incredibly uh, heartening. There's been an incredible flurry of activity. You know, Biden promised on the trail a a whole of government mm-hmm, mm-hmm. approach to climate, and it's really. You're seeing that now. You're seeing it in the State Department, Department of Defense, Commerce. It's the Fed, which I think is really significant. Um, you're seeing it across everything Biden has control over. So the big, the big hinge, the big question, it will come with legislation. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he can only do so much with executive powers. He needs something to pass. So there's the question of. Um, the filibuster, whether that's going to stay in place, and if it does stay in place, what can be squeezed through the budget reconciliation process, which is going to be, you know, you can get a lot of climate spending, a lot of infrastructure spending through mm-hmm. that process, mm-hmm. but you can't get anything like an actual comprehensive climate bill like like Biden campaigned on. So so right. the big the big question just comes down to you know, it's the same with all his other policy areas. It's, it's, does he, you know, do Democrats care more about the filibuster or more about accomplishing the goals they promised? Right. And, and, you know, we're already seeing, like you're saying, you know, some of these challenges, um, uh, you know, with some of the latest confirmation hearings, right. Where, uh, even though it's a 50, 50 split, uh, you know, even, even within the democratic space, it could be challenging, uh, to get some of these things through. Yes, you need to, I mean, we're in a, we're in a period of two years now where to get anything done beyond executive action, you need total democratic unity, all 50, all 50 democratic senators on the same page, which means Joe Manchin is our emperor and ruler for the next two years and his whims now determine what happens in the country. Yep. Yep. You have nailed that. Um, so how let's, you know, let's talk about in, in that context, you know, how, how do you view this energy transition, um, as, as being different from some of the other ones that have happened in the past, you know, what's, what's your take on that? Well, it's different in a number of ways. Big, big picture-wise, I think it's different in a number of ways. Um, I think, first of all, the previous ones were mostly uh, just happened, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. They just happened based on on economics and and um, you know stuff like that. Like slowly. Some sources became more expensive and rare. Other sources became cheap, and 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 you know. So, two one previous um, transitions were were I don't know. You'd call it accidental, just mm-hmm. things that happened as a as a result of of forces and not intentional things. So this one is intentional. If we ever <laughs> you know really mm-hmm. muster the intention, we're we're claiming we want to do it. So it, it's intentional in a way the previous ones weren't. And two, I think it's going to be faster. This is a, a kind of a pet theory of mine, but you know, there's a, a really well-known analyst, Vaclav Smil, who who is well known for kind of throwing cold water on all this talk of the clean energy transition. And his whole point is previous energy transitions take a long time. They take they take on the order of a century, you know, for something like, you know, whale oil to give way to coal or mm-hmm. something like that. Mm-hmm. It it takes a long time. And so his thing is all this talk about, you know, completely transitioning our economy by 2030 or 2050 or whatever is just kind of la-la land. So my thing is, 
one big difference of this energy transition to the previous ones is those previous ones were shifting from one kind of physical source of energy to another kind of physical source of energy. So you had to shift out all the production, all the machines, et cetera, and that takes a long time. One thing that's happening with this energy transition is we are doing that. We are shifting sources of energy, but we're also shifting from um, – the way I put it is is from stuff to intelligence. We're mm-hmm. substituting computing power for a lot of the stuff that used to be done physically or require physical force, sort of. We're, we're substituting computer power for stuff, for commodities mm-hmm. and machines. And computing power is getting cheap. Cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, unlike commodities, which, you know, physical commodities, which tend to get more expensive. Computing power is just getting cheaper and cheaper and more and more powerful. And it evolves and iterates much, much faster than Mm -hmm. physical machines, physical stuff. You know, you can have iterations of digital technologies, you know, almost instantly, depending on how how you work them. So, insofar as you can substitute computing power for stuff you're going to get you're going to move a lot faster because mm-hmm. digitization in the digital world just moves much faster than the mm-hmm. physical world so to the extent this energy transition is 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 dematerializing um i think it's going to move faster uh than previous ones so that's what i would say one it's intentional two it's going to be faster and and three because I mean, and a lot falls out of that because it's intentional and mm-hmm. because we need and want and are trying to do it fast. It's it's politically, I think, much more fraught than previous transitions because you're going to you're going to you're trying to displace a lot of a lot of what are more or less active and healthy business models. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. if you discount climate change, you're you know, you're, you're trying to basically on a large scale, you're trying to strand a lot of you know, what is today valuable uh, uh, energy. And that's just a politically something we've never done before and don't really know how to do. So David, you know, there, there's also a lot of uh, momentum from the investment community too, right? There's a lot of things happening with ESG investments. You know, there's uh, the, the CEO of BlackRock announcing in his annual letter to CEOs about how he sees, um, you know, climate tech and, and, and clean energy as a cause for optimism about capitalism, right? So uh, do, you, do you see that may actually help accelerate as well, uh, this, this transition? Yeah, I, I I completely do. I think it's 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 one of the signs that climate change has kind of gone beyond the activist community and has really nestled within the mm-hmm. mainstream now. So it's no longer mm-hmm. an if, it's a when now. I think everybody, mm-hmm. almost everybody in every industry now acknowledges this is a thing that's going to happen. This transition to clean energy is going to happen, and we're just haggling over the details. We're haggling over the timing, how quickly we want to do it. And that mental shift is a big deal, especially among the people who control vast quantities of mm-hmm. capital. The mm-hmm. way I sort of joke about it, you know, I did a long post on Microsoft's um, many initiatives. And the way I, I sort of summarized it is in the in the corporate world, I spent a long time, especially in like in the, the early 2000s, mm-hmm. you know, around mm-hmm. the time of Al Gore's first movie, where there was a lot of um, green talk you yeah, know, a lot yeah. of green sort of signaling a lot of a lot of yeah. green virtue signaling a lot of greenwashing a lot of but but it was mostly coming out of 
PR departments, basically. And I think what's happened over time is in the corporate world, concern over climate has escaped the PR department and made its way into engineering, into the shop floor. And now the geeks, like the engineers, have been gripped by this problem because above all, it's just a really super fascinating engineering problem, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's just, this is the kind of thing that smart engineering students love to get their hands on. It's just a, a huge challenge how to do this. And so you see much more substantial action coming out of the corporate world. Like what Microsoft is doing is genuinely inspiring. So yeah, I think they're one of the, the top accelerants right now. So, so David, you know, on, on the topic of climate change, right? And this has been a burning question for me to, to ask you this, um, uh, since we we organized this episode, and, and for the listeners uh, who are tuning in, you know we're we're just coming off of a, a big major episode in Texas uh, related to a, a a winter storm that basically uh, took out most of Texas without electricity. Mm-hmm. And um, David, what you know, what, what's your perspectives on that? What do you think happened, and then what needs to happen to avoid this from happening again? Well. It's <laughs> this is one of those things when you talk about the electricity grid and especially when you talk about utilities and utility regulation where l- literally everything is m- more complicated. No matter what answer I give, <laughs> no matter what answer I give, the truth is actually more complicated than that. But I think I think stepping back, the main lesson is just um the 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 range of weather conditions for uh-huh. which we need to plan mm-hmm. is is widening all the time, which, which any sort of planner can tell you is just is just devilishly difficult because because you know take Texas as a good example. Most mm-hmm. of Texas grid planning is around the summer peak because it's usually hot in Texas and mm-hmm. usually the peak demand in Texas is summer. So the whole system is built around, around that, that. Yep. and even. The climate forecast for Texas is, is going to get warmer and warmer. So it's not like that's going to change. But what's also going to happen with climate change is that amidst that general trend towards more warmth, you're going to get more frequent sort of freak, mm. super cold events okay. like you like you just saw. So just think about it from the perspective of the Texas grid. You build this entire grid designed around summer, and then you need to build this entire parallel grid and set of resources that are going to sit idle for nine years out of 10 until this one freak event comes along and it's needed. Right. And, and when you think about it, that's just incredibly expensive, right? It's incredibly expensive to have a whole infrastructure built for rare freak events. And that unfortunately is going to be the rule of <laughs> that's going to be the rule from now on for every region of the country every part of the world is just the range of stuff you have to plan for is much wider so that to me just means resilience has got to be mm-hmm. it's got to move up to number 1 in grid planning what texas had was a very sort of cowboy market where there where their reserve margins were kind of low yeah. and they were you know flirting with a kind of just in time delivery system which normally works great like texas ratepayers saved a ton of money over the last 10 years with, with this system but when something like this happens 
mm-hmm. then you're then you're completely left uh, out out and, and the fact that you know they're separate from the other two big interconnects in the United States yes so so, so part of resilience I mean resilience is moves in a number of directions. One is sort of down to more distributed energy, more local resilience, better insulating of buildings. Like like Texas buildings are just terribly insulated because they don't worry about cold very often. So they lost heat almost instantly. They had no backup. So, and you know, distributed solar panels and batteries and microgrids, all these ways of making the local areas more resilient. And then the other direction to go for resilience is outward, which means Texas needs to hook its grid up to the rest of the country. If it could have imported power from other areas of the country, it wouldn't have run into this. And it's just been trying to escape federal jurisdiction. So resilience means one, uh, bulking up your sort of distributed energy and your local resilience, and two, also reaching outward and interconnecting more broadly across the country. So Texas needs to do both those, and so does every other area mm-hmm. of the country. David, you, you, that's that's a really important point that you mentioned, and you've been writing a lot about this lately as well. And you know, the realm of transmission, right? And perhaps how there may need to be a different realization of you know, transmission is still the fundamental backbone of perhaps even the entire economy of the United States and, and for that matter, the world. So, you know, where where have we gone off on transmission and how can we get back on track? Well, it's not so much that we went off. It's just that mm-hmm. the world changed and the model by which we build transmission has not caught up yet. So in the old utility model, um, where where most power came from big centralized fossil fuel plants, you know, if you're a utility, you just go 20 miles outside of town, build your giant coal plant, and then run a transmission line from the coal plant to the city or the or the power load where it's needed. It's all very simple. You didn't, mm-hmm. you know, there wasn't, it wasn't very complicated. So a lot of things have changed now. One is renewables have come on the scene and renewables cannot just be sited wherever you want to site them, right? They're most mm-hmm. intense. They're most powerful in particular areas of the country, which often happen to be very remote Mm -hmm. from load centers, from from demand. So this raises the need for long distance power transmission, sort of the high voltage uh, direct current lines, HVDC lines that everybody talks about. This is, it's, it's a relatively new need and we just don't have a model for who pays for those. And, and, and right now, transmission is still regulated at the state level. So if you want to build a giant multi-state transmission line, you oh, have yeah. to negotiate with every state agency, every landowner, every county, and every one of those entities has a veto mm-hmm. over, the, over the line. So it's almost impossible to build these things. So we just need um, national grid planning in a way that the current system is not set up to do. Yeah. And, and that's also, um, that ties in very nicely with what you said earlier about, you know, the uh, advancements on the computational side of things, you know, how, how can we take advantage of aspects of development in that realm and apply it to our, our industry, specifically the transmission space, perhaps, you know, from the, from the perspective, perspective of uh, reducing grid congestion, right? There's, are there any advanced algorithms uh, that can be introduced to help with those types of issues or other areas that perhaps may reduce the interconnection cues, which like you were pointing out, you know, that's, that's been a challenge as well right. for a lot of jurisdictions too. Uh, well, yes. The, I mean, everything's getting digitized. <laughs> everything's <laughs> getting computerized. And that's true of the transmission system too. You have, um, for instance, so, you know, we know that the capacity of a line varies with the heat 
mm -hmm. the line. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the heat of the line is always fluctuating, but we just didn't have the tech up until very recently to monitor those lines in real-time basis. So mm -hmm. we just had to sort of guess at their capacity, and we always guessed low to be conservative. So now we have, um, you know, LIDAR. Yeah. <laughs> we can put a little box in the transmission tower that, that with LIDAR that watches the line and can tell grid operators in real time what the actual capacity of the line is, which just enables you to send a lot more power through the mm -hmm. lines. And there's a bunch of, you know, we have a lot more sophisticated power flow control technology that we didn't used to have. We have, um, you know, just by switching on and off circuit breakers, you can sort of reconfigure the topology of the grid, the physical topology of the grid, which makes power move through it differently. That's always been true. And, you know, but before it's just been sort of grid operators kind of, you know, mm -hmm. learning this arcane art on the job and sort of using their intuition to know where to do it. But now, of course, we have massive computing power so we can compute on a on a minute by minute basis. What's the optimum topology of the grid right now for our for our goals and 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 a computerized algorithm can chew through those calculations and spit out exactly yeah. what it is so you could you could update the topology of the grid every every 10 minutes if you wanted to and now, do it which in the again, cloud too <laughs> yeah which gets you a lot more efficiency so yeah. all of these serve basically to increase the performance of the stuff we've already built which is yeah. one of the great promises of of digitization, it just gets more out of existing resources. Yep, yep, absolutely. We're, we're. Um, I, I, I always wish we had more time for these discussions because they're so <laughs> interesting. Um, one, one last question I have for you, and and this is going back to one of your articles from Vox, uh, which really I was, I was very fascinated by and actually inspired by, and that was this concept of shifting baselines that you talked about in. Uh, I recall you gave an example of the fisheries industry, how, you know, the fishers were becoming used to there being less and less fish and that being normal, right? And perhaps that same type of uh, analogy could be extended to climate change and, you know, the impacts that we're seeing on the grid. So I'd love for you to share with the audience of this, you know, concept of shifting baselines and, and you know, how, how can we learn from that? Sure. Yeah. The fisheries example is great. The fisheries is where this whole concept was born. Mm -hmm. And it's not that individual fishers get used to changes. It's that a particular generation of fishers comes in and, and whatever pop the population of the fish is, when that generation starts, that's their normal, right? So they might experience a little bit of loss of that population, but then the next generation comes in and that slightly diminished population is not they don't experience it as diminished that's just their new normal that's their baseline right that's their new baseline and so every new generation comes in and sets a new baseline so no one generation or person really experiences the decline of the fish population as such no one can sort of take it all in mm. and yet you go from a robust fish population to the fish being basically fished out without any generation of fishers really experiencing a big change, right? And it's only in experiencing a big change that we become activated and care and see something as a problem mm -hmm. and try to solve it. But when things just are sort of eat away marginally over time, we just sort of continually update and continually adjust and so never really experience it as a crisis. Mm -hmm. And that is paradigmatically what's happening with climate change. So like 
even someone 50 years ago would have experienced a different physical climate, you know, fewer storms in some places, you know, or, or, or later, earlier winters in some places. But, but no one generation of people experiences a sharp enough or dramatic enough change in the climate to really be galvanized by it, right? And so every new generation comes in and it's a new baseline. And so what happens is the climate just is degrading before our very eyes, mm. but just we're not emotionally experiencing it as a crisis. Only things in a very narrow time frame, right? Because of how humans evolved, you know, to care mostly about their immediate circumstances out on the savanna, you know, we need to watch out for mm. you know, lions or whatever, but <laughs> but we're not we don't have the machinery to pay close attention to things that unfold on giant timescales and giant geographical scales. We just don't have the emotional machinery to take that in. So it's only through our intellect that we grasp these things. Insofar as we've learned about climate change, we have learned about it through our intellect, through our instruments, through our scientific instruments. <laughs> and we've had to sort of piece it together intellectually to paint a picture of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And it's just very difficult for humans, socially, socially, psychologically, to take that kind of abstract intellectual knowledge about what's happening and feel it mm -hmm. in our guts, right? We're just not designed to feel changes on those time and geographic scales. And so this is, I mean, this is part of what's this is part of the central challenge of climate change and a lot of other sort of modern global problems, right? Like once you have a global population that's as big and as powerful as us, you get lots of these sort of emergent uh, um, problems that just grow by increments, right? They're just not they're just not on the time scale that we're um, built to heed. And that's true of like the spread of diseases and, and you know, uh, economic inequality, like name it, like all these problems, you have to grasp them with your intellect and you need big cooperative solutions, which are also always difficult uh, politically, right? Like if we just needed yeah. to build seawalls around big U.S. cities – that would be one thing. Like if we could somehow solve the problem or protect ourselves on our own, it would be one thing, but we need everyone in the world to be doing, to be acting vigorously at the same time. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's just the trickiest kind of problem. And as no. you can see from our response to COVID, it's not like we do much better if it's faster and even more Unfortunately, devastating, yeah. right? Even that doesn't really activate our, you know, just look at how we, and I'll wrap up with this, look at how we reacted to 9-11 versus how we react to COVID, right? COVID has taken immeasurably more lives. Mm -hmm. It's done immeasurably more damage, arguably more damage to our international, <laughs> I mean, whatever, just on a human level, it's done way more damage, but because the deaths have been portioned out on a slow, steady drip, mm -hmm. They just don't have the cumulative emotional impact that losing all those lives at once did.
did. It's not rational, but it's just how humans are built. So politically, we have to compensate for that. We have to sort of design our way around this sort of limitation of human psychology. Uh, those are some great, excellent insights. And, you know, I hope in the electricity sector that, you know, we, we learn from this uh, experience as well, what's happened with COVID and not just take, you know, climate change as a, as a cumulative uh, impact. We, we definitely need to um, act on it um, sooner than later. Uh, David, this has been such a terrific conversation and I feel like I'm on a, uh, on a, on a news channel and my producer's telling me, Sal, you're cutting the time. You're cutting the time. Right. So, um, I, the I going to come out and yank you here in a second. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so my, my producer is Philip and he's very conscious about sending me messages when the time is running close. Uh, so thank you, Philip, for that. Um, for, for our listeners, uh, I'd love to, uh, invite you to David's new community. Uh, and sign up for his newsletter. It's at volts, V-O-L-T-S dot W-T-F. Yes, that's right. Um, David is also on Twitter at, uh, he tells me it's Dr. Volts. So it's, or you can call it at Dr. Volts. Um, but we'll be, you know, I, I definitely encourage you to check out those links. He has done a lot of great pieces on transmission and there's a lot more coming from him and, and some wealth of insights. Uh, we'll include links to all these as well at the bottom of the, the, the video. So you'll have access to them as well as uh, for our uh, podcast listeners on Spotify and other big platforms, you'll, you'll get access to those there too. And whether you're watching us on, 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 uh, on YouTube or listening to one of uh, our podcasts on your favorite episode, uh, podcast streaming uh, platforms, we really thank you for joining us today and, uh, Make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss one of our latest Electrifying AI episodes. And David, one last question before we let you go. <laughs> so we're building an Electrifying AI playlist on Spotify, and we would love to hear from you if you have any recommendations for tracks that you know we can add. Uh, in terms of electricity themed songs my favorite has always been the one from schoolhouse rock i'm sure you guys probably already have this on your uh on your playlist but uh the the schoolhouse rock song about electricity and power and it's amazingly sort of sophisticated <laughs> i guess relative to mm -hmm. relative to what you see these days so that would be my uh choice i have a million other songs i'd recommend but in terms of uh electricity themed songs that's that's the way i go it's very educational not, not, nice choice one of these days i gotta convince somebody on justin timberlake but um we'll work on that. <laughs> i'm a huge jt fan you don't have to convince me <laughs> We'll, we'll work on that. Well, listeners, uh, we would also love to know what song would you recommend? So if you have a pick, uh, you're more than welcome to tweet it to me at The Electric Sal. That's pretty easy to remember, so I don't need to spell it out. And we may just include your pick in our Spotify list and also send you some cool electrifying AI gear um, as a result. So that's all the time we have. And uh, I would like to thank you again. And please uh, check us back again uh, with our latest episode. Thank you.